When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining your relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org slash one four. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. All right, so today I'm interviewing Roger Connors, the author of Divine Patterns, Seeking the Blessings of Heaven. And Roger's, Roger, we did it. We're at the end of the, the episode. Uh, just briefly tell us what are some of your favorite things that people are going to hear in this episode that uh, they should stick around for. Well, I think part of it's kind of learning that uh, patterns are mental models that we find in the scriptures about where we start to help ourselves and others obtain the blessings of heaven. Yeah. That's awesome. And then we had a great discussion. Just for, as far as your bio, years in the leadership consulting world. Um, oh, 35 some odd. Nice. Been a stake president, bishop? Uh, stake president, branch president in the MTC. Oh, cool. All right. And then as, as a mission president. Yep. And what mission? The Washington Kennewick Mission. Awesome. Awesome. And I'm in a Provo uh, YSA stake presidency right now. Oh, cool. I'm loving it. Awesome. So y- you bring the the, uh, the research level, uh, leadership experience, the spiritual level, and we have a great conversation. So here's my interview with Roger Connors, the author of Divine Patterns, Seeking the Blessings of Heaven. Roger Connors, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, this is, uh, I'm excited to have this discussion. You, your uh, book came up on my radar from Deseret Book. I guess you, you recently published... Uh, with them, how did, how did, I mean, how did this book project come to come to be? I know you've written several books. You know, I've been thinking about this for actually a long time, and uh, approached uh, someone I knew at Desert Book about it uh, several years ago. And finally, they said, "Well, why don't you submit the idea?" And I submitted it. It's really an interesting process because. Uh, once you submit, it's not a guarantee the book will be published. Right. I've submitted once before and it did not get published. <laughs> it goes through this you know, outside yeah. board review and it's yeah. pretty thorough. And I, I found it really helpful and positive. It helped make the book better and uh, it was really a great experience. Nice. Now, you have uh, quite an experience with, with leadership thought in the context of the business world, professional world. I mean, that's where you made your career. How would you that's explain right. the, the career that you had? Well, I was involved in large-scale organizational transformation. So when uh, big companies wanted to kind of mobilize everyone in their organization and kind of change direction, yeah, they had to think about how do we get people thinking and acting differently quickly to make that happen. And that's what we did. We'd come in and help them with that part of the process. All right. So I got to ask, like, because obviously Ward's experiences, Stake's experiences, is there's a change in the bishopric or the roof study presidency. Like, are there like foundational principles of making that transition that maybe a, a ward leader, a new bishop should keep in mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, culture's culture, whether yeah. it's in business or in a family or at a church, yeah. right? So it's really important. I think, number one, you have to start with results. So a clear definition of what is it we want to accomplish. So being really clear about that. And then secondly, you have to think about, well, how do we need people to think and act differently? And if, uh, if you're familiar with behavioral science at all, there's this notion called confirmation bias. Yes. It's, yeah, a, built, it's a built-in bias to keep us from thinking the way we want to think differently. Confirmation bias reinforces the way we currently think. We interpret our world, we filter our world, and all the exp- new experiences we have through the old glasses. And we factor out everything that's new and only isolate the variables that tell us what we're doing right now is the right thing to be doing. So leaders have to be able to suspend that, I call it belief bias or confirmation bias, before they can get anywhere. And the way you do that is by creating new powerful experiences that people can't miss. And they kind of go, oh, you want us to think differently about that. I thought the the transition of ministering was something like that. Home teaching went from ministering to like in three days. You know, it was a fast, quick change. And I think the brethren are trying to create an experience for us that said, we don't have this fully baked. We don't have all the ideas thought out. 
but we know this is a transition we need to make, and here's the thinking. From this to this, from, from tactically home teaching to strategically ministering. And we've all been kind of working through that process to, to understand it. Yeah. So this concept, this is interesting. I was actually thinking about this the other day of, and you've been a mission president, and I think this is really poignant, um, this dynamic when a new mission president comes in. And I remember this, I, I served one year with one mission president, another year with another. And I remember that transition where there's this feeling of everybody, you know, loves the outgoing mission president, that believe in all his visions, his rules, and... Um, and then the new guy comes in, and there's sort of this resistance, like, hey, wait a minute. You can't change what President so-and-so just did. And and so I think a lot of leaders feel, and sometimes they get this direction that they say to new mission presidents, don't make a lot of changes too quickly. But what, what do you think about that? Is it okay to come in there and make some dynamic changes as a new leader? I think, I think in the proper course of time, I mean, you want to be careful not to change things you're not really understanding. Yeah. When I first got there, within the first week, I did a mission tour. I took my sleeping bag, and I just visited missionaries' apartments. I'd sleep in their apartments and <laughs> nice. on the floor, and I would have two or three sets of missionaries in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And by the time I got done, I probably had a third of the mission that I had stayed with for the week. But what was really different, that was a, that was a, a major experience for the mission. You can imagine the missionaries calling each other and saying, you're not going to believe this, but the mission president is sleeping on my floor in here tonight. <laughs> That's awesome. And it was a it was a signal that something was different to mm. them. And it wasn't different because things were bad. It was just different because it was time to take a different direction. And uh, those experiences can be powerful if you do them right. Yeah. And I just love that concept of, of a signal that's something different. Because there's like energy in that, right? It's like, okay, this we're headed in a new direction, but it's a good direction, right? Yeah, and those exactly. little things can, can spur that on. And it's not that you came in and you know, throw out all the old rules and institute new ones because what's the old, you know, never move a, a fence and let tell you know why the fence is there type thing. <laughs> One of the tricks of leadership, I think, in the church is to move people in a new direction without negating the old direction. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be tricky sometimes, right? Yeah. So I love that you bring up cognitive bias and man, we'll get to this, your your book and whatnot. There's, there's so much to discuss and I, and I love this, but so cognitive bias, um, I think we, we understand it in an, an academic context, but rarely do we maybe become aware of how it impacts us in a spiritual journey. So for example, we may be in a ward council and our cognitive bias can kick in and we may interpret that cognitive bias as, oh, that's the spirit because that feels really comfortable to go that way. And comfort is a signal that it's the spirit. So I think I have a strong feeling that we should go that way. So what's your experience of understanding the concept of cognitive bias and and functioning in a spirit-led uh, context? Well, I think that's that's the hard part for the Holy Ghost. The yeah. Holy Ghost has to penetrate our confirmation bias, right? Yes. To try to get us to think differently. We have this thing called selective perception where we selectively perceive our environment based upon our past experiences. Yeah. And that kind of relates to the same concept. So to reorient that selective perception and to get people to suspend confirmation bias and to kind of, where you really want to get them to is thinking, oh, that's interesting. Maybe doing it differently has some merit. Mm -hmm. that's, that's when you've suspended belief bias. Mm -hmm. And when you get to that point, now you can begin the change process. But change can't happen until you reach that point where each individual says to themselves, oh, maybe there is another way to do this that I should consider yeah. that has merit. Yeah. And sometimes that's an individual journey. It's not always just treating everyone as a group. Right. But I think what's powerful about that is, you know, you, you, you can't force people to, to, to behave differently, right? I mean, well, I guess, actually, I guess you can. Like if someone held a gun to my head yeah, and said, start you'd, jumping. You'd be a tyrant, right? I'd yeah. start jumping. <laughs> but when it comes to beliefs, the way people think, you can't force them to hold a belief. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. So if I can't force them to hold a belief, the problem is if I can force them to, to change a behavior through, through you know, coerce and compel techniques, um, unfortunately, as leaders, we tend to res resort to those kind of approaches too often because it's easy. Yeah. Like, I'm going to make you do this. Yeah. But when I when it comes to changing people's beliefs, the way they think, the only way you can do it, you can't use course and compel. You can only use persuade and convince strategies to get that done. So you have to think differently as a leader. How do I convince them? How do I persuade people? How do I com create a compelling case that this is the right direction to move and it'll be powerful and positive? In the church, we have the benefit of having priesthood keys 
and uh, powerful spiritual moments that help with that. But nevertheless, we still have to make our case to people in a way that causes them to go, oh, that's interesting. That could be a better way. Maybe I should consider that. Now you got them. If yeah. you get them to that point, you're, 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 you're in that city on. Yeah, and I've heard, um, I think it's an name, Adam Miller has written some books about um, why people believe certain things and, and how, we, how we debate about, especially in, in contexts like politics where people are really dug in. Yeah. And you don't necessarily go after how their, what their opinion is and, and why they think about the, that way, but more of how did you get to that opinion? And if you, get, if you go there, then you can sort of start breaking them open of like, okay, maybe there is a better way of thinking, just like you said, and then, that's their, then we can move forward, right? I mean, there's, you see examples of this in the church with come follow me in the way we teach. Hmm. You know, my older generation loves to stand and deliver. You know, yeah. that, that's <laughs> the way it was done for a long time. And we told stories about how past prophets would, would be, stand for three or four hours and, you know, and deliver, and they were inspirational and, and positive. But this interactive, engaging style where you're asking questions and maybe you don't have a lot in your lesson plan and it's mostly interaction and engagement. Uh, certainly, the, there's a role for testifying and teaching, but we have this other element. That's a really difficult challenge right now in the church, trying to get that transition to happen, particularly for, for the, the later generation. Yeah. Even love, invite, share, and missionary work. You know, a lot of people's belief bias is, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a good missionary. Uh-huh. I have no one I can talk to. So we shut down. I think the brethren are working really hard, that brother and sister leaders are working really hard to try to open our minds and say, everybody can participate in love and invite share. And here's how you do it. Yeah. So there's some real challenging uh, efforts we all have as local leaders to try to carry the water to the end of the row to make that happen. So, so we go to our meetings and we start preaching and teaching, but nothing's really changed. And we, we're not really being honest with ourselves that we're not getting any traction. And I think it's really important to stop and say, why am I not getting traction? Well, because of the way people think. It's not the way they act. It's how they're thinking about this, that our thinking drives our actions. So how do I get them to a place where they go, oh, that's interesting. That could apply to me. That might be a good thought. That comes through experiences. And so if, as we seek the spirit, to know what kind of powerful experiences can I create for the people I'm leading to help them get to that point where they suspend confirmation bias, that's that's really what comes first. Yeah. Do any experiences come to mind from your time as a mission president, as far as the, like the application of a lot with what you're saying? Um, like, what would this look like in, in practice? Well, in simple terms, um, and this is kind of a funny one. The uh, missionaries were teaching, I don't know, maybe seven to seven to eight lessons a week, and uh, the area seventy and the at the time the presidency of the 70 asked us to teach 20 lessons a week of course that's a great idea the more missionaries are teaching the busier they are the, yeah. the better life is right yeah so uh so it was an interesting process to get them to think differently because many of them thought that would be totally impossible 20 lessons a week how could that possibly be done and uh so we had a couple of uh companionships that took that challenge and working with them they they taught 30 lessons a week and so we began to let them share their experience oh, about wow. what they yeah. did. And when they would, missionaries would hear that in zone conference, they go, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I can do that too. Now we got them. Yeah. Because yeah, the belief that. bias is suspended. Hmm. And now we can reorient their selective perception. The great thing about selective perception and belief bias is it can also work for you. Once you suspend it and you get people thinking new, new ways of doing things, bias kicks back in and they're mm-hmm. looking for evidence that supports the new way. Yeah. They and now they're filtering their yeah. environmental locking it in. Yeah. I love that. Love that. And I'm just thinking, and I love that example of like having missionaries stand and share their personal experience. You know, a lot of time we feel like, you know, we need, maybe we need to reiterate, you know, this scripture and, you know, you really got the, you know, the sins will be over your head. You know, we sort of do this, this scare tactic or, or motivating through, through those things. But in reality, just show them an example of what works and then let them apply and be motivated by it. We make this mistake as leaders in the church all the time, it, it, not just in the church, but leaders in general. Yeah. But in the church setting, we keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, <laughs> right? right? We, don't need to know, we don't need to call that what that is. Right. But we, we continue just to go to meetings and say the same things and hoping things will get better. When are we gonna stop the insanity on that? <laughs> <laughs> and realize that doesn't work. And we have to become more thoughtful as leaders 
about how I suspend belief bias? How do I get people ready for this change I want them to make? And then introduce that change in a way that really does create traction. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, we got them warmed up. The audience is there. Let, let's jump into to, uh, Divine Patterns, Seeking the Blessings of Heaven. This is the, the, the title of the book that you wrote. What was the, I mean, was there a moment when this idea came to you, or is this just based off of your work in your professional life, or where, where did this, this begin for you? You know, it's been so long now, I don't even remember where that started, but somewhere along the line, this insight came that there are connections in the scriptures that are super powerful and simple and are really useful in, in terms of that context, looking at it that way. So, I mean, there's, there's patterns everywhere you go and everything, right? And yeah. patterns are the really mental models that show us what to do. And when you kind of get that insight, I remember my little grandson, he was, uh, we were going outside to play and he's real excited. And so he's going to put on his, his, his play pants and his shoes and go meet me out there. And I started hearing this crying and frustration coming from the mudroom. And I thought, okay, something's wrong. So I turned around the corner, and there he was trying to put on his pants over his shoes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's a pattern. Pants before shoes. That's a good one, right? Yeah. It tells you what to do. It's been and serving us a long time. It served us a long time. <laughs> and so you find those patterns everywhere, and particularly in the scriptures. And so there are these scriptural patterns that are just powerful. And, and really, uh, you have a 90% chance of discovering a pattern almost any time you pick up the scriptures and start reading. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, going back to cognitive bias and the way our brain works and how we're wired, which is, which was done by a, a heavenly father. Um, I mean, we, we function on patterns and routines. That's like how we're built. Is that sort of the basis where we're starting? Yeah. And I think sometimes, uh, even as leaders work with people, you know, the question becomes, well, where do we start? Mm-hmm. And I think the best place to start is identifying an appropriate pattern that's specific to their unique situation and, and needs. For example, we know that one of the patterns is that in order for us to be forgiven, we have to forgive others. Yeah. So if we're working with someone who's seeking forgiveness in their lives, we should apply that pattern. The promise is very clear from the Savior that when we forgive, we will be forgiven. Yeah. And, and my mind goes to the, you know, which gets a lot of a grief these days, you know, the, what is it, the four or five R's of repentance where we, we want to like, you know, insert this pattern that maybe is too primary or it makes it too rigid where maybe repentance is a much more organic process that's happening. So, I mean, how, how is there a place sometimes where we get in danger or get in trouble with trying to apply a pattern where it doesn't fit? Yeah. And I think you can think about patterns in a way that's really helpful and useful mm-hmm. and think about patterns in a way that's uh, difficult and restrictive, like steps to repentance. That was mm-hmm. the old way of thinking about repentance, right? Yeah. And the brethren have helped us understand better that it's not a step-by-step sequence, but it does consist of some elements. So there are our patterns to repentance that apply, but when we get too formulaic, that's when we get into problems. Mm. There's no heavenly vending machine, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You put in the token and out comes the blessing. It's all regulated by God in the way that he intervenes with his children. Yeah, and I've noticed this, that I think naturally this is just maybe human nature or whatever, but we want to turn life into equations, right? Mm. Like A plus B equals C and just, just follow the equation and life is good, you're happy, everything's wonderful. But though equations are some form of a pattern, that's not necessarily, we're not trying to turn everything into a math equation. Is that fair to say? That's exactly right. So I think there are, there are, there are association of ideas. The way I think about patterns, it's just an association of ideas. Like for example, uh, faith and miracles. In Bosiah 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 18, uh, the scripture says, Thus God has provided a means that man, through faith, might work many mighty miracles. Therefore, he becometh a great benefit to the fellow beings. Well, there's, a, there's an association of pattern. There's faith and miracles. Hmm. And that's a pattern. Uh, I, I remember as a young missionary, uh, my companion and I came home from a, a mission a zone conference. And in our zone conference, the mission president said, you should be paying your fast offering as missionaries. And that was new to us. I was, I was a convert maybe a year at the time and uh, was learning a lot. And uh, my companion didn't realize it either. We thought, oh, we're supposed to be paying mission, fast offering as missionaries. This is back when we provided all of our funds. There wasn't this uniform oh, yeah. funding. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went home. I remember us sitting at this little kitchen table. It was in the afternoon after zone conference. And we both thought, okay, we should pay our fast offering. 
we each had a $5 bill left and we had one week left to go to the end of the month before our money came again. So we're looking at each other and we're thinking, okay, should we do it? And we said, yes. So we took this envelope. We each put our $5 bill, our last cash in the envelope and said, all right, there's our fast offering. Uh Now, Lord, what are you going to do? Literally within two minutes, the word mission leader phones, uh, makes a phone call to us. And we answer the phone. He says, well, elders, I was just thinking about you. This is such an inspired man. I was just thinking about you, and I thought I'd take you to dinner tonight. Nice. We're like, fantastic. He says, where do you want to go? We're like, we want to go to Sizzler for the all-you-can-eat shrimp dinner so we can just <laughs> tank up on shrimp. We didn't tell him a thing about what was going on. So we get to the, to the restaurant, have our meal. It was great. On the way home, he says, do you mind if I make a stop at the store? We said, no, that'd be great. So he stops at the grocery store. He says, you, you just wait here. I'll be right back. So he's gone actually for quite a while and we're wondering what's going on. And finally he comes out and he has this, uh, you know, shop assistant pushing this trolley with several cases of canned food. So we're helping him load in the back of the car. We're kind of joking with him and he's loading up on his food storage. And he says, no elders, this is for you. I bought these cans of food for you. We're sitting here going, oh my goodness. He had no idea what was going on. And then uh, as, as we approached the, the apartment, we explained to him what would happen. And we were back sitting at our kitchen table about two hours later after putting the $5 on an envelope. We had an all-you-can-eat shrimp dinner at Sizzler <laughs> and five cases of canned food. Nice. And, you know, the association is that faith produces miracles. Right. And it happens in God's way in his time mm-hmm. and according to his will. But it happens. Yeah. And, um, and then that's the question. I remember my wife and I, we got married in January of 20, or 2006 in Idaho Falls. Uh, not a heavy snow year. And we were going to be married at Idaho Falls Temple. And we, I, we sincerely, once we visited the Idaho Falls Temple, and we were like, oh, man, we really hope that there's snow for a wedding, right? And we we sort of came together, sort of this young couple, and we're like, you know, let's let's show some faith and fast and pray for some snow. Well, I'll show you all my wedding pictures. It's dead green you're dead <laughs> gray yellow grass right and so because there's sometimes that dynamic where that or i could i could use that sort of an excuse of losing faith like well wait a minute you know roger talked about you know this yeah. this pattern that that worked for him like maybe i don't have as much faith or you know then we start inserting reasons so like how do we reconcile those those two experiences i think it's really important to understand that we don't earn blessings uh, they don't come to us because we did something. Mm-hmm. Elder Renlund talks about having this activating energy that starts the process of qualifying. So that's an important understanding that a, a pattern for receiving blessings is that we don't earn them. We qualify for them by doing what we can. And then it's up to God to, uh, to deliver as he sees is wise for mm-hmm. our lives. I, he has, I believe he has, and I write about this in the book, this clause called do no harm. It's like the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Yeah, yeah. And it is that God will not bestow upon us blessings that aren't for our good at that moment in time. Yeah. I mean, it's not right for everybody to win the lottery. It's right. not going to be a really great thing for everyone to do it. Yeah. I wouldn't mind it. I'm, most wouldn't mind it. But it may not be the right thing. And so we have this trust that this all-wise, all-knowing, loving God will make sure that the right thing happens at the right time for us. Yeah. And from a leadership standpoint, I mean, what, what guidance would you give there? Because sometimes we want to be the leader that promises blessings or says, you know, if you do A, B, and C, life is going to be much better for you. And uh, and we're maybe partly thinking, I'm pretty sure it will be. Anyways, go for it. You know, because there is, obviously there is a benefit of having, of inserting ourselves in, in patterns in life, especially those that have been established by God through scriptures and living prophets. And so anything you'd say from that point of the leader that is sort of promising or saying, if you do this pattern, this will happen or and, and any guidance there. This So this is a personal perspective. I think the old way, was to stand up and promise if you pay your tithing, the windows of heaven will open and all your problems will be solved. You get that check in the mail, That's right? just going to come. <laughs> the new way is to stridently make that promise that the windows of heaven will open, but to, to continue the conversation by teaching, and it will happen in, in the Lord's way and in the Lord's time and according to his will for the best benefit of you. Yeah. We have to be complete in our in our understanding of how it really works, that we don't earn blessings, that... We qualify that 
they don't come because we deserve it. They come because God is ready to grant it because it's the right time for us in our lives. Yeah. And it goes back to my, my personal story. You know, obviously it didn't propel us into a faith crisis because there wasn't snow on, on our wedding day. But um, it, it is, it, I think it showed to God that we were willing to turn to Him for blessings, for um, hope. And in that, you know, I'm sure that blessing from that that humble moment came in many other forms and we are definitely more you know faithful individuals because we sort of had those patterns early on and he knew at the end of the day you don't really need snow on your wedding day well Kurt there were probably five other people praying that it wouldn't snow I know right (laughs) (laughs) that's the that's the rub yeah exactly exactly so um, what's the scripture the Lord is bound when you do what I say Dr. Gums 8210 8210 right um because that's another scripture that's sort of hard to sit with of being, and and you see it a lot in the, in the scriptures of being like I remember my mission president inviting us to be super obedient because we had certain goals that we were trying to reach. I don't know if he was right or wrong in doing that, but I, there's sort of this this pattern that we establish or this equation we establish early on in our faith tradition of saying, you know, let's bind the Lord, you know, let's use His godly power by doing everything that He is. I even have a choice then to bless us how we want to be blessed. Like that's sort of what we insert at the right. end, right? And so just with that scripture in mind, any other guidance or thoughts that come to mind? Well, I think it's, I think it's a powerful principle to trust in the promises of God and to anticipate the, the outcomes, uh, blessings, hmm. and that we should, we should have great faith in that. But sometimes we overdo it with our agency. We're, we're telling the Lord what he needs to do. Mm-hmm. We're telling him how he needs to bless us. And isn't it better that we trust in him and want to be blessed the way he wants us to be blessed and to trust that he will do it? Yeah. I mean, he really, the question becomes, is it my will or thy will? I always, I used to to tell my missionaries all the time, you can have what you want or you can have something better. (laughs) And that something better is always what God wants for us. So we really make a mistake when we don't imply that we're subject to his will. And wanting to seek his understanding of what he wants to have happen. We may know what that, not know what that is. So we may just have to trust whatever outcome presents itself is in line with his thinking of what he wants to have happen. Yeah. So it takes us to the context of being a mission president. And how did you do that? Because just from this context of you, you're leading a group of individuals. You have maybe bold goals and, and vision that you want to have come to pass. And so it's natural to try and motivate them through you know, we're going to be super obedient. So this, these visions and goals come to pass or, but then it's a, a, a bad month. So then how do you address them or, and, and, and keep these patterns, you know, working in their life rather than having them dismiss it or being, or question themselves. So in that context, anything come to mind or great, a story? Great questions and thoughts. And I think, I think, you know, you learn a lot as a mission president, you probably start off the wrong way and end up closer to the right <laughs> That's why way. They give you three years, That's right? why they give you three years. <laughs> so I think, I think it's more about teaching correct principles Mm -hmm. as opposed to driving a specific objective. And in the context of teaching those correct principles, you're setting goals and trying to to grow the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember this one young man, it was actually before we went out in the mission field, he wanted to be a missionary. And uh, he was was overweight. He, He was not allowed to go because of his situation. And so he said, well, I'm gonna, I'm going to qualify. I'm going to go. I'm going to go work on this. And so we had this huge road in front of the stake center called the Monster. And it was about a mile long and it was about a mile high. I mean, this was like uh-huh. a nuts. It was it was a tough road to ride on a bike. And he started riding that that monster every day. And he said, "President, I know when I'll be ready." And so I was his stake president at the time. He said, "When I get to the top of the hill, when I conquer the monster, I'll be ready to go." I said, "All right. Well, keep me updated." So he would update me from time to time, and he, he worked at it. He was really a hard worker. And one day he called me on his phone, and he said, okay, I did it. I conquered the monster. And I said, no way. He says, yeah, I did it. So we applied, and he was accepted in the mission field. And oh, cool. he, I think about seven months later, I got a call from his mission president. Usually as a stake president, we're getting a call from a mission president. Yeah. It's not generally good news. Yeah. And a lot has transpired at that point. That's then. right. Yeah. All good news. This oh, mission cool. present was raving about how effective this missionary was. And I started thinking, you know, had he not had that experience, he wouldn't have been that in the mission field. Yes, yes. The Lord had something planned for him, and he trusted in that. Yeah. 
And so just applying these correct principles, he found himself in a, a situation where God could bless him. Yeah. And that's what, you know, going back to this concept of patterns that I really appreciate is the sanctifying nature of it, that you, that I, and this is where you bind the Lord. Like if you turn your life over to God, he will make of you something that you could never be, make of yourself. And I mean, that's a guarantee, right? And so, yeah. and it may be messy and, and complicated and you may have more downs than ups at times it feels but at the end of this you're gonna think wow like look what he did to to me to help me progress and that's that pattern is everywhere right for sure and and, you know we hear we hear less about binding the lord on something and more about binding yourself to jesus christ Mm, yeah by walking the covenant path yeah and i think there's real power in just if elder Elder Bednar, I thought it was so interesting when he talked about it. I was, I was when I was serving at the MTC, he came and spoke several times, and I remember him. This is this was kind of funny because we actually had um, had him come. Then we had another member of the twelve come. It was Elder Scott. Elder Scott came first, and Elder Scott came and he taught twenty one principles of how to feel the Spirit, and it was two pages front back. It was probably eight point font font size. And we were asked not to distribute this document, but it was it was like dense. It was great. It was wonderful. He went through all these things. Then Elder Bednar shows up about a year later, and he's speaking to missionaries, same context, same setting. And he just says, don't worry about it. Just be a good boy or a good girl. Do the right thing, and the Spirit will guide you. And we're just kind of laughing because we've got, <laughs> all right, wait a minute. What about these 21 principles that we learned? And you're just saying, don't worry about it? Obviously, yeah. He was saying the starting point is, don't worry about it. You're going to be guided. God will bless you. He'll be with you. He'll help you. And you won't know you're being guided most of the time that it's happening. But as you grow in your spiritual journey, there's these other concepts and principles that will help you refine your ability to listen to the Spirit, which is what Elder Scott was talking about. Yes. But it's this general promise that, look, if you're doing the best you can to walk the covenant path and you're binding yourself to the Savior, you can be assured these promises will come to pass. They will come at, in his time and his way, but they will come. Don't lose faith in that. Don't lose hope in that. I, I've talked to people when I was writing this book, I, I interviewed a number of people who feel like the Lord's let them down. He hasn't come through with his promises. Mm-hmm. They were on plan A at one time, now they're on plan G. And how is that fair to them? Why isn't he doing for him what he does for others? And the only explanation I can give is hold on, Continue faithful, and he will come through for you. No matter what your circumstances were, if you were walking the covenant path bound to the Savior, he will come through for you. Yeah, and that can be such a difficult place to be as a leader is when someone comes to you like, all right, Bishop, I'm on plan Z now. Yeah, right. right. What's after this, right? And But we have that assurance that, you know, like we said, that as, as we bind ourselves to Jesus Christ on, on that path, like, it made just even being in that waiting for that blessing, like that is a way that he's blessing us in the moment to learn how to be more faithful. He's developing us. And, but it's so hard to see, right? When you're, yeah. you're sitting in that gutter and, and you, you were hoping for something more. I came home from my mission as a mission president three months early on a medical leave. Hmm. I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. Oh my goodness. They thought I was going to die. And, uh, you know, I went through, chemo and all the stuff that goes along with that and was fully cured from that. Thankfully, that's not always how it happens. Yeah. It's how it happened in my situation. But things will happen in life that seem unfair, that make you feel like a victim, that just come out of nowhere, out of the blue. It doesn't happen to other people, but it happened to you. If you lose too much time asking why, you're going to be disappointed. That why question is hardly ever answered. The question to ask is not why, it's what. What should I do next? Yeah. Focusing on that next step. And uh, because of that, um, it's really been just a coincidental thing that happened in my life. It's not how I define my life, and it's not, not, not what has defined the rest of my life. And I'm grateful for that. But I just, I just fundamentally believe that no matter what challenge you've been through, no matter how hard it's been, there's purpose in it. We've been told that all of these trials have their purpose. And if we can just trust that and know that he has not left us and he'll help us, that's that's the right way to be. Yeah. 
And that goes back to maybe our, our wiring again is for some reason we're desperate to know the why. We want the purpose of yeah. all this because we feel like if we can understand the purpose, then then I can go one more day. But instead to shift that to get over it, yeah. get over the why, <laughs> just drop it. If the Lord wants you to know it, it will present itself. But yeah. it's so rare that we'll find the answer to that. Or it's 20 years in the future. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> and we just have to wait for it, right? All right. Uh, let me, I, I know I've caused you to bounce all over your this outline here, but um, what, what did you hope, like, with writing this book, what are the main takeaways you hope someone reading this, uh, a Latter-day State reading this, reading this book, will, will take away? Well, be conscious of the mental models or the, the patterns that are found in the scriptures and that are taught by the leaders of the church. They're there for a purpose. They help us know what to do. So use them to guide you and to guide other people. You know, use the patterns to be, to be aware of what steps I take and what I need to become in order to be in a situation where I can be blessed by God. And then I think it's uh, having a trust in his timing, that it's not formulaic, that uh, it's not an equation, uh, that those blessings will come in his own time, in his own way. I remember uh, after coming home from my mission uh, as a new convert. I, I didn't really know a lot of people in my area, so I, I was going to a local community college and had gotten accepted at BYU Night School and uh, uh, had decided not to go. And finally I met with my bishop about a week before school started at BYU, and he said, you know, Roger, you, you ought to go. Like, you should go do this. And so I finally said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I, I jumped in my little Opal. That's a car. <laughs> okay, I've never heard of that car. <laughs> it's a little, it, little Opal, and it had a, a you know, uh, plastic in the windshield duct tape in because the window was broken, and it had a gum wrapper holding up the rearview mirror. I mean, it was just, it was pretty sad. But I loaded up the few things I had, and I jumped in my car, drove from Southern California to Provo, 750 miles. Had no idea what I would do when I arrived in Provo. Just knew I should go. And I just offered a prayer to my Heavenly Father and said, you know, you promised you'll take care of your return missionaries. So I need you to take care of me. And I did the drive. Remember pulling into Provo, it was about, nine, it was about seven o'clock that night. And it was 900 East and Center Street. And I was sitting at that intersection thinking, okay, I'm here. What am I going to do? Like, I have no place to stay tonight. And as I looked over, something said, go to that little apartment square. And it's still there now. It was called Fairmount Square at the time. So I drove over to this apartment complex. I knocked on the door. Manager came to the door and she says, what do you need? And I said, well, I'm looking for a place to stay. I'm going to school. And she was really razzing me for, you know, it's like, it's just like six days away now. And she says, I have one bed left in the apartment complex. You can go meet the roommates. And if that works for them, then you can have it. So I said, okay. So I started walking down the hall to, to the room. And I'm thinking for the first time, roommates. <laughs> and considered that. I wonder what that's going to be like. Uh-huh. So I knock on the door. And uh, when the door opens, there's three former missionary friends from the George Atlanta mission that I served with standing on the other side of the threshold. Oh, nice. And they started laughing. They said, what do you need? And I said, well, I'm looking for a place to stay. And they said, well, you found it. And that's where I stayed for my first year at school. I, mean, if you, I don't know if you followed that story. I went from Southern California, 700 miles to Provo, knocked on one door for one bed. And that's where the Lord took me. Yeah. And it was an amazing, marvelous experience. Yeah. And so I hope we, we reflect in our lives seeing the hand of the Lord, knowing He's with us. He's actively involved in our lives. If you're not feeling that right now, you can be because He's interested in you. He wants to be involved in your life. And as leaders, we have to make that connection for everyone first to make sure they're seeing the hand of God in their life. Yeah. And that's almost, sometimes you can do that like the next day or in the moment, like, wow, this could have never been orchestrated without God's hand. And other times it's, it's in the future, at least from my experience. Um, you know, I've never been the type of person who like, you know, with my realtor, I go to a neighborhood and I walk in this house. I'm just like, oh my goodness, there's just something about this house. or We need to move here. Like that's never been the case, but it's always like 10 years after or whatever. I'm like, Oh, I remember when this and this and this happened, and that got me to look into this area, and that now I ended up here. Like I, God's hand was all through that, but in the moment, I'm just like, sure. I mean, it's got what we need. Let's just move here, and and we move forward with it. And sometimes I beat myself up because I want to be the person who's like prayerful about everything and feels that you know the the tinkle of, of the spirit as I 
you know, make a one step forward. But a lot of times I'm just like sort of plowing forward. And it, but when I turn around, I'm like, oh yeah, there's God. I'll, I'll yeah. get out that. Right. Right. Yeah. So maybe just take us through like just off the top of your head, just what these patterns in the scriptures or in, in conference talks or what are some good examples of some of these patterns, these divine patterns that you speak of? Well, there's so many, like I said before, if you read, open up the scripture and start reading, you have a 90% chance of discovering a pattern that very day, you know, as you, as you read. Uh, one example from Ether 12.6, and now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not, because you see not. For you receive no, you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. So there's a, there's a pattern. The pattern is that we have this trial of our faith, and then there's an expectation that there will be a witness, that God will show us that he's there. Um, I experienced this uh, coming out of MBA school at BYU. I wanted to work at Bain, a strategic consulting yep. firm, and it was a big deal. They came to our school. They didn't interview a lot of people, and so it was, it was a choice job everyone was after. That was kind of like my plan A, B, C, and D. It was like, that's where I was going to work. Bain or bust. Huh? Bain or bust. <laughs> And I actually got an interview. So I, I interviewed at seven. I did seven interviews in San Francisco, seven in Boston. So I did 14 interviews with the company. Uh-huh. And the last interview was, nah, we don't think you're fit. Oh, wow. <laughs> Crushing. <laughs> I'm like, what? And, you know, they said, we don't think you'll want to travel as much as we travel. And uh, ended up in my, when I did get a job, I, I put a million miles on with American Airlines in my first four years. But uh, they're like, yeah, that's your, this year's not a fit. So I came back to the uh, to the school to to the Marriott School and and I'm thinking, okay, what do I do now? And I remember standing in the uh, the mail room of the MBA classes. They had little mailboxes, and on the wall was this little flyer for this little niche consulting firm coming from California. I thought, I'll you know I'll give it a shot. So I applied. They hired me. It was a seven person consulting firm at the time, and. But they were doing like the coolest work on organizational culture back then. No one ever, no one ever talked about corporate culture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were the, the the first ones. Oh, cool! And we did. I I did Three Mile Island nuclear power plant when they had the meltdown almost. And I went in afterwards and looked at the cultural characteristics of why. I worked with the high yield junk junk bond department in L.A. with John uh, with Michael Milken, who was taken out, and then John Kissick went. I mean, these were like high profile stories. Oh, that's great! I'm working on these really cool projects. And four years later, I was able to start my own business in that industry and had a wonderful, thriving career there. So it was so much better than what I would have done. Bain would have been great, but this was a way better fit for me in what happened. So, you know, there was a trial of my faith, and uh, but then the witness came that the Lord was with me. He closed one door but opened another. Yeah. Yeah. What other patterns come to mind? So, uh, you know, you have, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's a pattern, right? You've got, uh, let's try Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you should not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. So this pattern of having faith and not doubting, but believing, is a simple pattern that shows us that we can move mountains in our lives. Mm-hmm. So these are, these are simple things, but they're powerful concepts. And as we work with people, let's say they have a big mountain in their life they're trying to move. I worked with young, one young man. I'm still working with him. He came to me and he was near suicidal. I, I really thought he would, he would potentially take his life at some point. So job one was to get him to stay alive. Job two, he wasn't in school, didn't have a, a very productive, he was washing dishes for a, for a job. It's like, okay, how do we get him in a better place? There were like these mountains that had to be moved along the way each time. And I think, so So how do you do that? Like as a leader, you're sitting here going, how do I move these mountains? I mean, I could be tactical about it. Well, we could look for job applications or whatever, but there's something bigger than that. And that is how do we exercise faith in this case? And doubt not, but be believing. You know, what principles do we apply here that really help us to move these? And it was him that had to have the faith and the belief. So how, how do we start with that? I remember he, uh, um, he 
we we had a prayer rock because we were trying to he was trying to establish prayer as a routine. So you know this notion of a prayer rock on your pillow. So when you your your head hits the pillow, you hit the rock first. Oh yeah, I need to pray. And uh, it was just funny these simple little things that it took to really kind of cause him to be able to make progress and move forward. So the patterns allow us to see where to start. That's really what the patterns are for. Mm. I love that, and, and especially in the leadership context, we as we meet with different people and we want to be a good resource to them. Just having this foundation of patterns of thinking. Okay, so what 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 pattern are you implementing in your life? Where is it found in the scriptures? How's it working for you? And and it sort of gives you a place, sort of a workshop to go with the gospel, rather than just these, you know, general um, uh, platitudes that maybe are less applicable or, or feel that way. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's the words pattern, not. Not checklist. Yeah, yeah. So, is there anything like, anything you haven't said as far as avoiding turning a pattern into a formula, or anything else you would that we haven't touched on in that, or we cover it? You know, I think it's just fundamentally our, our believing that um, you know it's it's like in in with uh, qualifying for worthiness in a church setting. If someone makes a mistake or there's a, 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 mis- a problem in their life, a worthiness issue, they go to their priesthood leader, there's not going to be a set time frame for that person to have to wait to receive their blessings or mm-hmm. move forward. It's very individualistic. It's really, it's unique to that situation. And I think patterns are also the same way in, in, in terms of how they're expressed. Meaning, we don't know when the blessing will come. We know that the blessing will come. But we don't know when it will come. And so I think it's just fundamentally, fundamentally believing these aren't, these aren't steps uh, in a sequence. They're principles in a pattern. And applying the principles is what really will bring the benefit. Yeah, I appreciate that. Eddie, um, as you read the scriptures and you identify different patterns, is there anything you do you know, practically that in order to retain and, and reference back to these patterns or just highlight them and... Or anything you do that, that way. Yeah, much much more aware of them today yeah. as I study. There's some complex patterns where you know this the scripture might say it refer to nine things and then the blessing, right? Oh, yeah. There's some simple patterns like if you love me, keep the commandments. Super simple. And you know we don't want to get too carried away. Patterns aren't everything, right? There's lots of principles and ideas. But I think um, I think you you read. It's nice to read the scriptures differently as you search them for the fourth or fifth or 14th or 15th time. Yeah. Discovering patterns is a, is a fun way to do it. Yeah. And I'm, my mind goes to like, sometimes the pattern they'll use different verbiage or words for the same pattern, like uh, clean hands and a pure heart or justification and sanctification. Like that's the same pattern, but using different verbiage. And I actually have a, a tag in my gospel library of justification and sanctification. And it's fun to just read down those scriptures and see that so many different words are used for that same pattern. It's 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 yeah. interesting to find those. We I was just doing the "Come Follow Me." You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Solomon in it recently. I think it was Solomon, First Solomon two thirty. Uh, Jehovah said, "He who honors God, or he who honors me, I will honor." And I recognize that as you know a clear pattern. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And then just the fun of, where else can I find that, right? And, yeah. and diving in and, and looking but for But if more. someone were asking, how do I get more power in my priesthood blessings? Like when I give a blessing, I set someone apart as a leader or uh, giving a blessing of comfort. How do I gain more power in that? Well, God will honor you and your words that you pronounce if you're honoring him. Hmm. So how do I show more honor to God? Yeah. And if I do, I'll feel that power come when he honors me in the words that I pronounce. Yeah, that's powerful. Anything that we, we've missed that uh, you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up? You know, I think, uh, I just think, again, to those who may feel like, gee, it's, it's not working for me, that things aren't happening the way that I thought they could. If that's happening for, for you or you're working with someone as a leader where that's happening, um, people don't want to just be told it's going to be okay, they'd like to understand it better. Like, why is this happening? And as we said before, the whys are difficult. But as we study scriptural examples, we can see where delay and blessings have come, that it's taken time. 
And uh, I mean, Moroni himself wandered for how long? Was it 16 years by himself? Yeah. <laughs> uh, before he moved on. I mean, things can take time. And I think educating and understanding how the Lord works is really beneficial to that. Yeah. I remember writing to my sister-in-law when she was a missionary, and you know we talk about Doctrine and Covenants one twenty-one with Joseph in the in the Liberty Jail, and you know there's these powerful moments of revelation. But you, I forget exactly how long he was in there, but most days it was just another day. There's no revelation. It was just, are we going to eat today? And I'm tired of bending over, or I'm going to go sit in that corner. Today. Like most days, it was just nothing. And yeah. to put that into perspective and realize, oh, okay, I'm just on an off day in the Liberty Jail and I'll get through this one and move on to the next one and the someday that, that revelation will come, right? Um, well, this has been awesome and obviously published by Desert Book. Again, the the title is Divine Patterns Seeking the Blessings of Heaven. Um, so, all major church bookstores, Amazon, anywhere else you'd send them if they want to know yeah, more about Yeah, that's right. What? All those places. Yeah? Okay, cool. Well, I'd love to find a reason or excuse to invite you back on the podcast. Looks like you have a well of knowledge that we, we barely uh, tapped into here. The last question I have for you is just reflecting on your church leadership experience, uh, the different callings you've had. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, my goodness. I'm so grateful I've been asked to do some of those things. Because you're so much more focused on being worthy of, of the Lord's help. And uh, I'm just so grateful that those opportunities have come because it's caused me to be a better example, better man, a better father, a better husband. And uh, so if you're, if you're a leader right now, just enjoy the moment because it's a special blessing to represent the Master and to be motivated in that way. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember to access the Questioning Saints Library for 14 days. Visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.